So welcome to a Nutrition and Clinical Practice podcast. I'm Dr. Jeanette Hassey, the Editor-in-Chief of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. The theme for the June 2021 issue of NCP is conducting research. So joining me today are Dr. Ryan Spellacy and Dr. Kristen Bussey, the authors of the paper, The History of Human Subjects Research and Rationale from Institutional Board Review Oversight, which is published in the June 2021 issue of NCP. Dr. Spellacy is the Ursula von der Ruhr Chair in Bioethics and Professor of Bioethics and Medical Humanities in Psychiatry and Behavioral Health in the Center for Bioethics and Medical Humanities at the Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, where he is also the Director of the Human Research Protection Program, which includes the IRB and Assistant Provost for Research. Dr. Bussey is an Assistant Professor in the Department of Clinical Sciences and Research Oversight and Program Director of the Office of Research in the School of Pharmacy at the Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. So thank you, Dr. Spellacy and Dr. Bussey for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Before we start our discussion, I'd like to ask our guests if they have any disclosures on this topic that they'd like to share. Dr. Spellacy? I do not. Dr. Bussey? Neither do I. So for those of us who might be involved in research, sometimes we can on occasion complain about all the steps we have to go through with an IRB for our research studies. But I think your paper clearly outlines why IRBs are so important and necessary for conducting research. So Ryan, can we start out and talk about the two major cases that you have in the paper that kind of contributed to the regulations that we have now? So if you can kind of briefly discuss those cases and and how those cases even happened uh, when they did. Sure. So, you know, the question of how they could have happened, uh, I think there's two important elements to consider there. One is sort of the cultural milieu in which they took place. In my field is bioethics, and the, the birth of bioethics was really around the, the practice of paternalism in medicine. So if you think about these cases, Tuskegee and Willowbrook, and when they occurred in our country, you know, in the 30s and then later in the 50s, that was an era of sort of doctor knows best. And the doctor knew what was best for you, or at least that was the attitude, and you just did what the doctor said. There wasn't an emphasis on autonomy, on informed consent. And so that people could be enrolled in research, perhaps without their consent, or coerced into research uh, or with undue inducement in the case of Willowbrook isn't all that surprising when we consider how medicine was practiced generally back then. But the other reason why this sort of thing could happen is there was no regulatory framework. There were no IRBs really to speak of, and there weren't federal regulations that governed research or something like the Belmont that laid out and said, these are what we think are the important ethical principles for the conduct of ethical research. It was simply physicians and researchers did research as they saw fit. There was some legal cases around informed consent, but even that was, was fairly nascent at the time. So Ryan, that kind of leads me into the next question. How did we get from that state of having those atrocities to our current state where we have strict oversight of human subject review and and maybe you can give us a brief history of how these institutional review boards started. Sure. So how we got from the situation of the atrocities to our current state of strict oversight of human subjects research is really there was, there was public outcry over this. 
it, it was it's important to note that that articles about Tuskegee, for example, were being published in the in the academic literature for a long time before it caught on in the popular media. And when that happened, Congress was you know, the public was outraged. Congress was outraged and cases like the ones we discuss in the article, Willowbrook, Tuskegee, came to light, as did others like the Jewish chronic disease uh, experiments hospital experiments and uh, the Stanford prison experiments that are somewhat famous in the biomedical or in the behavioral research side of things. All of these came to light and it became clear that something had to be done. And so Congress formed a, uh, there was a, a national commission that came up with the, with the regulations that govern human subjects research. So for those of us who do research or those of us who are on IRBs, that familiar those numbers like 21 CFR, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That stands for Code of Federal Regulations. And those are the federal regulations that govern research. And when you look at those, you can trace them back to atrocities like Tuskegee and like Willowbrook. So there is a whole extra section in the regulations that governs pediatric research, research with kids. And it focuses on risk level and parental permission and securing the child's assent. And those are the exact things that didn't happen and went wrong in Willowbrook. Tuskegee as well, issues of justice. The IRBs are required to consider whether or not subject selection is equitable. And that's a problem with Tuskegee. Uh, from the outset, at the beginning of Tuskegee, there really weren't a safe and effective treatments for syphilis. And so that wasn't a problem when Tuskegee started. There wasn't a, a risk-benefit ratio problem there where they weren't being denied an effective treatment, a safe and effective treatment for their syphilis because it didn't exist. But an ethical issue with Tuskegee that existed at the onset and persisted through the end was you had one group in society, African-American males, shouldering the burden of research for everyone else's benefit. And that's an unfair distribution of the benefits and burdens of research that's a violation of the Belmont principle of justice. And that's specifically called out in the regulations. When IRBs review research, we're supposed to look at and verify that, yes, the subject selection is equitable. It's a fair distribution of the burdens and benefits of the research in society. Or if it's not, we're not supposed to approve that research. So Kristen, Ryan really kind of alluded to some of these regulations. So can you tell our listening audience what agencies currently oversee human subject protection in the United States? And how does that kind of filter down to our local IRBs? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think the overarching agency that I think of is the Department of Health and Human Services. So we certainly have those regulations under DHHS um, that's considered the common rule um, that applies to multiple different agencies. But within Department of Health and Human Services, a couple stand out specifically. So one is the FDA. Um, and we all know that the FDA is responsible for protecting the public health by assuring the safety and effectiveness of drugs, vaccines, you know, multiple um, different things that they have oversight with. Um, but specifically, you know, they have to oversee compliance with the FDA regulations that ensures proper review of unapproved drugs and devices. 
before the clinical investigations can begin in humans. So that's the IND and IDE process of oversight. So that's on one side. On the other side, I think of OHRP or the Office for Human Research Protections. And they're an office within DHHS as well that provides clarification and guidance on ethical and regulatory issues. And it's through OHRP that an IRB must register and receive a federal-wide assurance to receive HHS support for research that involves human subjects. So it's really OHRP that has the responsibility for oversight of compliance with the other regulations, if you think of it that way, the 45 CFR 46, that is the the non-interventional or uh, non-drug and device side of research. So, Kristen, a lot of times as an editor, I'm asked um, from authors or prospective authors if they need IRB approval for their project. What advice do you give to researchers and how to determine if IRB approval is required? Uh, Yes, isn't that a, a common question for anybody who has any sort of knowledge of the IRB and regulations surrounding research? So, a couple of things come to mind. Um, first, you know, there's a couple of questions you have to ask yourself. Is the proposed project research as defined by the regulations and does it involve human subjects? So in order for it to be governed by IRB, both criteria have to be met. Um, So first of all, the definition of human subjects according to the regulations is a living individual about whom an investigator, whether professional or student, conducting research, obtains information or biospecimens through intervention or interaction with the individual, and uses studies or analyzes the information or biospecimens, or obtains, uses studies, analyzes, or generates identifiable private information or identifiable uh, biospecimens. And then similarly, research, as defined by the regulations, is a systematic investigation, including research development, testing, and evaluation designed to contribute to develop or contribute to generalizable knowledge. Um, So we ask those, those questions first, but then it often comes down to intent. And if the intent is to fill a hole in the literature that's identified, then that's generalizable knowledge. However, if you know, in a similar project, if the intent is to approve a process at your institution to make it safer for your patients, then that's most likely a quality improvement type uh, project. So something else that we we like to use as a simple test is asking the investigator, at the end of the project, you answered your question, but you didn't find anything of interest outside of the institution, you know, that you would consider it worth publishing. Would you consider yourself um, that your project is successful if you don't have anything to share outside of the institution? And if that's that's the case, that you really don't have anything to share, then it's it's likely not a research project because that is individualized to that institution and not something to be shared outside to contribute to generalizable knowledge. Um, But in the end, you know, I always advise to speak to the IRB office because the running joke is uh, it usually depends and it depends on the project and the specific aims of the project. And and I totally agree with that. I think I always defer the authors to discuss this with the IRB. And I think the other thing that's really important is to do it before you start your project as well. 
So Ryan, one of the things that I really liked in your articles, you had this figure one, and it kind of highlights the criteria for IRB approval. So can you kind of expand upon those overriding principles that you mentioned there, which was respect for persons, beneficence, and justice, and how they kind of relate to the protection of human subjects? Yeah, it's a great question. Thank you. So respect for persons, beneficence, and justice are the three Belmont principles. In the Belmont report, most of us have probably read it. It's a short document, easy read. The interesting thing about the Belmont report is it elucidates these three principles, and it's really just a tool. My training, I'm a philosopher by training. The Belmont report, the Belmont principles are by no means an ethical theory with a foundation and, and things like that. They're a useful tool for people from different walks of life, different religious, ethical convictions, what have you, political, that they can come together on the IRB, on the study team, and those Belmont principles of respect for persons, beneficence, and justice really provide us with a common language that we can zero in on and have an ethical discussion. Regardless of what we fundamentally think about ethics, we can use these principles to discuss the ethical issues in a research project. And so that figure that we have in the article is in part an attempt to demystify the regulations. The criteria there are a very much distilled down version of the regulatory criteria I mentioned earlier that the IRB has to document and has to be able to say, yes, these are all met. Those are, you know, we commonly refer to those in the IRB world as the regulatory criteria for approval. And so under justice in the figure, there is selection of subjects is equitable. And I mentioned that in reference to Tuskegee. That was one of the ethical violations in the Tuskegee syphilis study. And ethically, that's a justice violation. And so we can view those regulations as really just an attempt to codify or put into regulatory language the Belmont principles that informed consent will be documented when appropriate and that measures are in place to protect the privacy and confidentiality of research subjects. That's really just an attempt to put into regulatory language the Belmont principle of respect for persons. And I liked what Kristen said when she said, you know, there's this joke around the IRB that, well, it depends. These are difficult decisions and challenging decisions that IRBs make. If they weren't, we would have somebody, a staff person in the office who could simply process these themselves and get it done. But these are challenging, complicated issues with a lot of nuance and a lot of gray area. And those Belmont principles give us a framework to have a conversation as a committee. That's why Belmont says we need to identify which ethical principles are, are relevant, are salient, and how they apply in a given research case and balance them against one another. And that's why you have an IRB, which is composed of a diverse group of people, physicians, non-physicians, scientists, non-scientists, people from the institution, people outside of the institution. And we all get together and come to a consensus, really using at its core, those Belmont principles of respect for persons, beneficence, and justice. I think that those comments are just, they, they just really kind of resonate and I hope they do with our listeners as well, the importance of using IRBs in human subject protection. So before we close, do either of you have any additional comments that you'd like to share with our listeners today? 
you know, one thing that I noticed uh, as this conversation was going on, and, I, and thank you very much for having us. I, I very much enjoyed this. Kristen and I both referred to uh, human subjects and the regulations. Part of the reason for doing that is that's the terminology used in the regulations. So when we start to talk about the regulations, we kind of get in that mindset of referring to people who are kind enough to volunteer their time and sometimes their bodies for our research as human subjects. And I, I, I'm mindful of the fact that some of your listeners might cringe a bit when we say a, a term like human subjects. And by no means do we mean to imply that the, the people that without whom we couldn't do our research, that volunteer for our research are somehow, I, we don't mean the term subject to imply that they are less than or inferior or anything like that. And I used to like to use the term research participants until my, one of my mentors said, you know, I still use the term human subjects as a reminder that things aren't always equal in research. Uh, when someone is doing, is facilitating informed consent, the person from the study team facilitating informed consent knows more about the research study than the person they're asking to participate in that research study. And so when we use a term like human subjects, it reminds us of that disparity in knowledge about the research, perhaps in knowledge about how medicine and science is conducted. And it keeps it at the forefront of our mind that, you know, I know more about this research study than this person that I'm asking to enroll in the study. And I better be very careful and make sure that their questions are answered and that I present the information in a way that, that he or she can understand. And that's really getting at respect for persons, demonstrating respect for the individual that is giving their time and sometimes their body to further biomedical science and hopefully to improve the health of everyone, but they're a human being and they have a right to decide for themselves. And we have an obligation to make sure that their decision is informed and it reflects their values. And if they're not able to make a decision for themselves, say, because they're a child and they're not able to make decisions, then we need to protect them. And when I say we, you know, at the beginning, we said I'm the director of the Human Research Protection Program, which includes the IRB. A human research protection program at, at an academic medical center or university or wherever you are isn't just the IRB. The human research protection program is all of us. It's, and we really need to approach protecting the people that participate in research and facilitating ethical research as a team. The IRB can't do it all themselves. The study team can't do it all themselves. And we need help from the community to do this as well, from the people that we serve. And so I'd really just encourage your listeners to think about what's my role, even if I'm not an IRB, although I would encourage you to look into it. We're always looking for great members for the IRB. But even if you're, if you're engaged in research in any way, you're part of your institution's human research protection program. And we have an obligation to the people that are good enough and kind enough to participate in our research, not merely to prevent another Tuskegee or another Willowbrook, but really to make sure that the research that we conduct is ethical and upholds the highest standards in the Belmont principle and is concordant with the regulations because we owe it to the people that agree to participate in our research. Uh, very well said and, and great reminders, Ryan. Kristen, do you have any closing comments you'd like to leave with our readers? 
Yes, thank you. Again, I'd like to echo as well what a delightful conversation this has been and, and thank you for this opportunity. Um, just really briefly, um, since Ryan had spoken so eloquently about, you know, the, the greater charge for the community to um, participate in, in research and protection of human subjects, I, I'd like to just, again, share with everybody, you know, I'm a, a pharmacist by training, but, you know, my experience on the IRB has been one of the most rewarding parts of my career um, up until this point. And I would highly encourage anybody who's interested at all, you know, in the in the regulations or the ethical principles we, we speak about um, in the article and, and here with you today, reach out to IRB, like Ryan was saying, you know, get involved, um, see how you can contribute. And like Ryan said, we're certainly always looking for um, interested, engaged uh, people who want to help dive into these much needed discussions uh, surrounding research. So thank you. Well, I want to thank you, Dr. Spellacy and Dr. Bussey, for really sharing your expertise and your passion about this topic with our listeners today. And I invite our listeners to find out more about conducting research in our June 2021 issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. So thank you both today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.